At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of North and South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell First published in serial form in Household Words in 1854-1855, and in volume form in 1855. On its appearance in Household Words, this tale was obliged to conform to the conditions imposed by the requirements of a weekly publication, and likewise to confine itself within certain advertised limits, in order that faith might be kept with the public. Although these conditions were made as light as they well could be, the author found it impossible to develop the story in the manner originally intended, and, more especially, was compelled to hurry on events with an improbable rapidity towards the close. In some degree to remedy this obvious defect, various short passages have been inserted, and several new chapters added. With this brief explanation, the tale is commended to the kindness of the reader. Beseeking him lowly, of mercy and pity, of its rude making to have compassion. CHAPTER One, HASTE TO THE WEDDING Wooed and married in A. Edith, said Margaret gently. Edith. But as Margaret half suspected, Edith had fallen asleep. She lay curled up on the sofa in the back drawing-room in Harley Street, looking very lovely in her white muslin and blue ribbons. If Titana had ever been dressed in white muslin and blue ribbons, and had fallen asleep on a crimson damask sofa in the back drawing-room, Edith might have been taken for her. Margaret was struck afresh by her cousin's beauty. They had grown up together from childhood, and all along Edith had been remarked upon by everyone, except Margaret, for her prettiness. But Margaret had never thought about it, until the last few days, when the prospect of soon losing her companion seemed to give force to every sweet quality and charm which Edith possessed. They had been talking about wedding dresses, and wedding ceremonies, and Captain Lennox, and what he had told Edith about her future life at Corfu, where his regiment was stationed, and the difficulty of keeping a piano in good tune, a difficulty which Edith seemed to consider as one of the most formidable that could befall her in her married life, and what gown she should want in the visits to Scotland, which would immediately succeed her marriage. But the whispered tone had lately become more drowsy, and Margaret, after a pause of a few minutes, found, as she fancied, that in spite of the buzz in the next room, Edith had rolled herself up into a soft ball of muslin and ribbon, 
and silken curls, and gone off into a peaceful little after-dinner nap. Margaret had been on the point of telling her cousin of some of the plans and visions which she entertained as to her future life in the country parsonage, where her father and mother lived, and where her bright holidays had always been passed, though for the past ten years her Aunt Shaw's house had been considered as her home. But in default of a listener, she had to brood over the change in her life silently, as heretofore. It was a happy brooding, although tinged with regret at being separated for an indefinite time from her gentle aunt and dear cousin. As she thought of the delight of filling the important post of only daughter in Helston Parsonage, pieces of the conversation out of the next room came upon her ears. Her aunt Shaw was talking to the five or six ladies who had been dining there, and whose husbands were still in the dining-room. They were the familiar acquaintances of the house, neighbors whom Mrs. Shaw called friends, because she happened to dine with them more frequently than with any other people, and because if she or Edith wanted anything from them, or they from her, they did not scruple to make a call at each other's houses before luncheon. These ladies and their husbands were invited, in their capacity of friends, to eat a farewell dinner in honor of Edith's approaching marriage. Edith had rather objected to this arrangement, for Captain Lennox was expected to arrive by a late train this very evening, but, although she was a spoiled child, she was too careless and idle to have a very strong will of her own, and gave way when she found that her mother had absolutely ordered those extra delicacies of the season which are always supposed to be efficacious against immoderate grief at farewell dinners. She contented herself by leaning back in her chair, merely playing with the food on her plate, and looking grave and absent, while all around her were enjoying the mots of Mr. Gray, the gentleman who always took the bottom of the table at Mrs. Shaw's dinner-parties, and asked Edith to give them some music in the drawing-room. Mr. Gray was particularly agreeable over this farewell dinner, and the gentlemen stayed downstairs longer than usual. It was very well they did, to judge from the fragments of conversation which Margaret overheard. I suffered too much myself, not that I was not extremely happy with the poor dear general, but still disparity of age is a drawback, one that I was resolved Edith should not have to encounter. Of course, without any maternal partiality, I foresaw that the dear child was likely to marry early. Indeed, I have often said that I was sure she would be married before she was nineteen. I had quite a prophetic feeling when Captain Lennox—and here the voice dropped into a whisper, but Margaret could easily supply the blank. The course of true love in Edith's case had run remarkably smooth. Mrs. Shaw had given way to the presentiment, as she expressed it, and had rather urged on the marriage, although it was below the expectations which many of Edith's acquaintances had formed for her, a young and pretty heiress. But Mrs. Shaw said that her only child should marry for love, and sighed emphatically, as if love had not been her motive in marrying the general. Mrs. Shaw enjoyed the romance of the present engagement rather more than her daughter. Not but that Edith was very thoroughly and properly in love. Still, she would certainly have preferred a good house in Belgravia to all the picturesqueness of the life which Captain Lennox described at Corfu. The very parts which made Margaret glow as she listened, Edith pretended to shiver and shudder at, partly for the pleasure she had in being coaxed out of her dislike by her fond lover, and partly because anything of a gypsy or makeshift life was really distasteful to her. Yet had any one come with a fine house, and a fine estate, and a fine title to boot, Edith would still have clung to Captain Lennox while the temptation lasted. 
when it was over it is possible that she might have had little qualms of ill-concealed regret that captain lennox could not have united in his person everything that was desirable in this she was but her mother's child who after deliberately marrying general shaw with no warmer feeling than respect for his character and establishment was constantly though quietly bemoaning her hard lot in being united to one whom she could not love i have spared no expense in her trousseau were the next words margaret heard she has all the beautiful indian shawls and scarves that the general gave to me but which i shall never wear again she is a lucky girl replied another voice which margaret knew to be that of mrs gibson a lady who was taking a double interest in the conversation from the fact of one of her daughters having been married within the last few weeks helen had set her part upon an indian shawl but really when i found what an extravagant price was asked i was obliged to refuse her she will be quite envious when she hears of edith having indian shawls what kind are they delhi with the lovely little borders margaret heard her aunt's voice again but this time it was as if she had raised herself up from her half-recumbent position and were looking into the more dimly lighted back drawing-room edith edith cried she and then she sank as if wearied by the exertion margaret stepped forward edith is asleep aunt shaw is there anything i can do all the ladies said poor child on receiving this distressing intelligence about edith and the minute lapdog in mrs shaw's arms began to bark as if excited by the burst of pity hush tiny you naughty little girl you will waken your mistress it was only to ask edith if she would tell newton to bring down her shawls perhaps you would go margaret dear margaret went up into the old nursery at the very top of the house where newton was busy getting up some laces which were required for the wedding while newton went not without a muttered grumbling to undo the shawls which had already been exhibited four or five times that day margaret looked round upon the nursery the first room in the house with which she had become familiar nine years ago when she was brought all untamed from the forest to share the home the play and the lessons of her cousin edith she remembered the dark dim look of the london nursery presided over by an austere and ceremonious nurse who was terribly particular about clean hands and torn frocks she recollected the first tea up there separate from her father and aunt who were dining somewhere down below an infinite depth of stairs for unless she were up in the sky the child thought they must be deep down in the bowels of the earth at home before she came to live in harley street her mother's dressing-room had been her nursery and as they kept early hours in the country parsonage margaret had always had her meals with her father and mother oh well did the tall stately girl of eighteen remember the tears shed with such wild passion of grief by the little girl of nine as she hid her face under the bedclothes in that first night and how she was bidden not to cry by the nurse because it would disturb miss edith and how she had cried as bitterly but more quietly till her newly seen grand pretty aunt had come softly upstairs with mr hale to show him his little sleeping daughter then the little margaret had hushed her sobs and tried to lie quiet as if asleep for fear of making her father unhappy by her grief which she dared not express before her aunt and which she rather thought it was wrong to feel at all after the long hoping and planning and contriving they had gone through at home before her wardrobe could be arranged so as to suit her grander circumstances and before papa could leave his parish to come up to london even for a few days 
now she had got to love the old nursery though it was but a dismantled place and she looked all around with a kind of cat-like regret at the idea of leaving it for ever in three days ah newton said she i think we shall all be sorry to leave this dear old room indeed miss i shan't for one my eyes are not so good as they were and the light here is so bad that i can't see to mend laces except just at the window where there's always a shocking draught enough to give one one's death of cold well i dare say you will have both good light and plenty of warmth at naples you must keep as much of your darning as you can till then thank you newton i can take them down you're busy so margaret went down laden with shawls and snuffing up their spicy eastern smell her aunt asked her to stand as a sort of lay figure on which to display them as edith was still asleep no one thought about it but margaret's tall finely made figure in the black silk dress which she was wearing as mourning for some distant relative of her father's set off the long beautiful folds of the gorgeous shawls that would have half smothered edith margaret stood right under the chandelier quite silent and passive while her aunt adjusted the draperies occasionally as she was turned round she caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror over the chimney-piece and smiled at her own appearance there the familiar features in the usual garb of a princess she touched the shawls gently as they hung around her and took a pleasure in their soft feel and their brilliant colours and rather liked to be dressed in such splendour enjoying it much as a child would do with a quiet pleased smile on her lips just then the door opened and mr henry lennox was suddenly announced some of the ladies started back as if half ashamed of their feminine interest in dress mrs shaw held out her hand to the newcomer margaret stood perfectly still thinking she might yet be wanted as a sort of block for the shaws but looking at mr lennox with a bright amused face as if sure of his sympathy in her sense of the ludicrousness at being thus surprised her aunt was so much absorbed in asking mr henry lennox who had not been able to come to dinner all sorts of questions about his brother the bridegroom his sister the bridesmaid coming with the captain from scotland for the occasion and various other members of the lennox family that margaret saw she was no more wanted as shawl-bearer and devoted herself to the amusement of the other visitors whom her aunt had for the moment forgotten almost immediately edith came in from the back drawing-room winking and blinking her eyes at the stronger light shaking back her slightly ruffled curls and altogether looking like the sleeping beauty just startled from her dreams even in her slumber she had instinctively felt that a lennox was worth rousing herself for and she had a multitude of questions to ask about dear janet the future unseen sister-in-law for whom she professed so much affection that if margaret had not been very proud she might have almost felt jealous of the mushroom rival as margaret sank rather more into the background on her aunt's joining the conversation she saw henry lennox directing his look towards a vacant seat near her and she knew perfectly well that as soon as edith released him from her questioning he would take possession of that chair she had not been quite sure from her aunt's rather confused account of his engagements whether he would come that night it was almost a surprise to see him and now she was sure of a pleasant evening he liked and disliked pretty nearly all the same things that she did margaret's face was lightened up into an honest open brightness by and by he came she received him with a smile which had not a tinge of shyness or self-consciousness in it well i suppose you are all in the depths of business ladies business i mean 
very different to my business, which is the real true law business. Playing with shaws is very different work to drawing up settlements. Ah, I knew how you would be amused to find us all so occupied in admiring finery. But really Indian shaws are very perfect things of their kind. I have no doubt they are. Their prices are very perfect, too. Nothing wanting. The gentlemen came dropping in one by one, and the buzz and noise deepened in tone. This is your last dinner-party, is it not? There are no more before Thursday. No, I think after this evening we shall feel at rest, which I am sure I have not done for many weeks. At least, that kind of rest when the hands have nothing more to do, and all the arrangements are complete for an event which must occupy one's head and heart. I shall be glad to have time to think, and I am sure Edith will. I am not so sure about her, but I can fancy that you will. Whenever I have seen you lately, you have been carried away by a whirlwind of some other person's making. Yes, said Margaret, rather sadly, remembering the never-ending commotion about trifles that had been going on for more than a month past. I wonder if a marriage must always be preceded by what you call a whirlwind, or whether in some cases there might not rather be a calm and peaceful time just before it. Cinderella's godmother ordering the trousseau, the wedding breakfast, writing the notes of invitation, for instance, said Mr. Lennox, laughing. But are all these quite necessary troubles? asked Margaret, looking up straight at him for an answer. A sense of indescribable weariness of all the arrangements for a pretty effect, in which Edith had been busied as supreme authority for the last six weeks, oppressed her just now and she really wanted some one to help her to a few pleasant, quiet ideas connected with a marriage. "'Oh, of course,' he replied, with a change to gravity in his tone. "'There are forms and ceremonies to be gone through, not so much to satisfy oneself as to stop the world's mouth, without which stoppage there would be very little satisfaction in life. But how would you have a wedding arranged?' "'Oh, I have never thought much about it, only I should like it to be a very fine summer morning, and I should like to walk to church, through the shade of trees, and not to have so many bridesmaids, and to have no wedding breakfast. I dare say I am resolving against the very things that have given me the most trouble just now. No, I don't think you are. The idea of stately simplicity accords well with your character. Margaret did not quite like this speech. She winced away from it more from remembering former occasions on which he had tried to lead her into a discussion, in which he took the complimentary part, about her own character and ways of going on. She cut his speech rather short by saying, "'It is natural for me to think of Hellstone Church, and the walk to it, rather than of driving up to a London church in the middle of a paved street.' "'Tell me about Hellstone. You have never described it to me. I should like some idea of the place you will be living in, when ninety-six Harley Street will be looking dingy and dirty, and dull, and shut up. Is Helstone a village, or a town, in the first place? Oh, only a hamlet. I don't think I could call it a village at all. There's the church, and a few houses near it on the green. Cottages, rather, with roses growing all over them. And flowering all the year round, especially at Christmas. Make your picture complete, said he. No replied Margaret, somewhat annoyed. I am not making a picture. I am trying to describe Hellstone as it really is. You should not have said that. I am penitent, he answered. Only it really sounded like a village in a tale, rather than in real life, 
"'And so it is,' replied Margaret, eagerly. "'All the other places in England that I have seen "'seem so hard and prosaic-looking after the new forest. "'Halstone is like a village in a poem, "'in one of Tennyson's poems. "'But I won't try and describe it any more. "'You would only laugh at me if I told you what I think of it, "'what it really is.' "'Indeed, I would not. "'But I see you are going to be very resolved. "'Well, then,' tell me that which I should like still better, to know what the parsonage is like. Oh, I can't describe my home. It is home, and I can't put its charm into words. I submit. You are rather severe to-night, Margaret. How? said she, turning her large soft eyes round full upon him. I did not know I was. Why, because I made an unlucky remark— you will neither tell me what Hellstone is like, nor will you say anything about your home, though I have told you how much I want to hear about both, the latter especially. But indeed, I cannot tell you about my own home. I don't quite think it is a thing to be talked about, unless you knew it. Well, then, pausing for a moment, tell me what you do there. Here you read, have lessons, or otherwise improve your mind, till the middle of the day, take a walk before lunch, go a drive with your aunt after, and have some kind of engagement in the evening. There, now fill up your day at Hellstone. Shall you ride, drive, or walk? Walk, decidedly. We have no horse, not even for Papa. He walks to the very extremity of his parish. The walks are so beautiful, it would be a shame to drive, almost a shame to ride. Shall you garden much? That, I believe, is a proper employment for young ladies in the country. I don't know. I am afraid I shan't like such hard work. Archery parties? Picnics? Race balls? Hunt balls? Oh, no, she said, laughing. Papa's living is very small, and even if we were near such things, I doubt if I should go to them. I see. You won't tell me anything. You will only tell me that you are not going to do this and that. Before the vacation ends, I think I shall pay you a call, and see what you really do employ yourself in. I hope you will. Then you will see for yourself how beautiful Hellstone is. Now I must go. Edith is sitting down to play, and I know just enough of music to turn over the leaves for her. And besides, Aunt Shaw won't like us to talk. Edith played brilliantly. In the middle of the piece the door half opened, and Edith saw Captain Lennox hesitating whether to come in. She threw down her music and rushed out of the room, leaving Margaret standing confused and blushing to explain to the astonished guests what vision had shown itself to cause Edith's sudden flight. Captain Lennox had come earlier than was expected. Or was it really so late? They looked at their watches, were duly shocked, and took their leave. Then Edith came back, glowing with pleasure, half shyly, half proudly leading in her tall, handsome captain. His brother shook hands with him, and Mrs. Shaw welcomed him in her gentle, kindly way, which had always something plaintive in it, arising from the long habit of considering herself a victim to an uncongenial marriage. Now that, the general being gone, she had every good of life, with as few drawbacks as possible, she had been rather perplexed to find an anxiety, if not a sorrow. She had, however, of late settled upon her own health as a source of apprehension. She had a nervous little cough whenever she thought about it, and some complacent doctor had ordered her just what she desired, a winter in Italy. 
Mrs. Shaw had as strong wishes as most people, but she never liked doing anything from the open and acknowledged motive of her own good will and pleasure. She preferred being compelled to gratify herself by some other person's command or desire. She really did persuade herself that she was submitting to some hard external necessity, and thus she was able to moan and complain in her soft manner, all the time she was in reality doing just what she liked. It was in this way she began to speak of her own journey to Captain Lennox, who assented, as in duty bound, to all his future mother-in-law said, while his eyes sought Edith, who was busying herself in rearranging the tea-table, and ordering up all sorts of good things, in spite of his assurances that he had dined within the last two hours. Mr. Henry Lennox stood leaning against the chimney-piece, amused with the family scene. He was close by his handsome brother. He was the plain one in a singularly good-looking family. But his face was intelligent, keen, and mobile. And now and then Margaret wondered what it was that he could be thinking about, while he kept silence, but was evidently observing, with an interest that was slightly sarcastic, all that Edith and she were doing. The sarcastic feeling was called out by Mrs. Shaw's conversation with his brother. It was separate from the interest which was excited by what he saw. He thought it a pretty sight to see two cousins so busy in their little arrangements about the table. Edith chose to do most herself. She was in a humour to enjoy showing her lover how well she could behave as a soldier's wife. She found out that the water in the urn was cold, and ordered up the kitchen tea-kettle, the only consequence of which was that when she met it at the door, and tried to carry it in, it was too heavy for her, and she came in pouting, with a black mark on her muslin gown, and a little round white hand indented by the handle, which she took to show Captain Lennox, just like a hurt child, and, of course, the remedy was the same in both cases. Margaret's quickly adjusted spirit-lamp was the most efficacious contrivance, though not so like the gypsy encampment which Edith, in some of her moods, chose to consider the nearest resemblance to a barrack life. After this evening all was bustle till the wedding was over. End of chapter 1《Roses and Thorns》By the soft green light in the woody glade, On the banks of moss where thy childhood played, By the household tree through which thine eye First looked in love to the summer sky. Mrs. Hemans Margaret was once more in her morning dress, travelling quietly home with her father, who had come up to assist at the wedding. Her mother had been detained at home by a multitude of half-reasons, none of which anybody fully understood, except Mr. Hale, who was perfectly aware that all his arguments in favour of a grey satin gown, which was midway between oldness and newness, had proved unavailing, and that, as he had not the money to equip his wife afresh, from top to toe, she would not show herself at her only sister's only child's wedding. If Mrs. Shaw had guessed at the real reason why Mrs. Hale did not accompany her husband, she would have showered down gowns upon her. But it was nearly twenty years since Mrs. Shaw had been the poor, pretty Miss Beersford, and she had really forgotten all grievances, except that of the unhappiness arising from disparity of age in married life, on which she could descant by the half-hour. Dearest Maria had married the man of her heart, only eight years older than herself, 
with the sweetest temper and that blue-black hair one so seldom sees mr hale was one of the most delightful preachers she had ever heard and a perfect model of a parish priest perhaps it was not quite a logical deduction from all these premises but it was still mrs shaw's characteristic conclusion as she thought over her sister's lot married for love what can dearest maria have to wish for in this world mrs hale if she spoke truth might have answered with a ready-made list a silver-gray glace silk a white chip bonnet oh dozens of things for the wedding and hundreds of things for the house margaret only knew that her mother had not found it convenient to come and she was not sorry to think that their meeting and greeting would take place at helstone parsonage rather than during the confusion of the last two or three days in the house in harley street where she herself had had to play the part of figaro and was wanted everywhere at one and the same time her mind and body ached now with the recollection of all she had done and said within the last forty-eight hours the farewell so hurriedly taken amongst all the other good-byes of those she had lived with so long oppressed her now with a sad regret for the times that were no more it did not signify what those times had been they were gone never to return margaret's heart felt more heavy than she could have ever thought it possible in going to her own dear home the place and the life she had longed for for years at that time of all times for yearning and longing just before the sharp senses lose their outlines in sleep she took her mind away with a wrench from the recollection of the past to the bright serene contemplation of the hopeful future her eyes began to see not visions of what had been but the sight actually before her her dear father leaning back asleep in the railway carriage his blue-black hair was grey now and lay thinly over his brows the bones of his face were plainly to be seen too plainly for beauty if his features had been less finely cut as it was they had a grace if not a comeliness of their own the face was in repose but it was rather rest after weariness than the serene calm of the countenance of one who led a placid contented life margaret was painfully struck by the worn anxious expression and she went back over the open and avowed circumstances of her father's life to find the cause for the lines that spoke so plainly of habitual distress and depression poor frederick thought she sighing oh if frederick had but been a clergyman instead of going into the navy and been lost to us all i wish i knew all about it i never understood it from aunt shaw i only knew that he could not come back to england because of that terrible affair poor dear papa how sad he looks i am so glad i am going home to be at hand to comfort him and mamma she was ready with a bright smile in which there was not a trace of fatigue to greet her father when he awakened he smiled back again but faintly as if it were an unusual exertion his face returned into its lines of habitual anxiety he had a trick of half opening his mouth as if to speak which constantly unsettled the form of the lips and gave the face an undecided expression but he had the same large soft eyes as his daughter eyes which moved slowly and almost grandly round in their orbits and were well veiled by their transparent white eyelids margaret was more like him than like her mother sometimes people wondered that parents so handsome should have a daughter who was so far from regularly beautiful 
not beautiful at all, was occasionally said. Her mouth was wide, no rosebud that could only open just enough to let out a yes and no and a and please you, sir, but the wide mouth was one soft curve of rich red lips, and the skin, if not white and fair, was of an ivory smoothness and delicacy. If the look on her face was, in general, too dignified and reserved for one so young, now, talking to her father, it was bright as the morning, full of dimples and glances that spoke of childish gladness and boundless hope in the future. It was the latter part of July when Margaret returned home. The forest trees were all one dark, full, dusky green. The fern below them caught all the slanting sunbeams. The weather was sultry and broodingly still. Margaret used to tramp along by her father's side, crushing down the fern with a cruel glee, as she felt it yield under her light foot, and send up the fragrance peculiar to it, out on the broad commons into the warm-scented light, seeing multitudes of wild, free, living creatures reveling in the sunshine, and the herbs and flowers it called forth. This life, at least these walks, realized all Margaret's anticipations. She took a pride in her forest. Its people were her people. She made hearty friends with them, learned and delighted in using their peculiar words, took up her freedom amongst them, nursed their babies, talked or read with slow distinctness to their old people, carried dainty messes to their sick, resolved before long to teach at the school, where her father went every day, as to an appointed task, but she was continually tempted off to go and see some individual friend, man, woman, or child, in some cottage in the green shade of the forest. Her out-of-doors life was perfect, her indoors life had its drawbacks. With the healthy shame of a child, she blamed herself for her keenness of sight, in perceiving all that was not as it should be there. Her mother, her mother always so kind and tender towards her, seemed now and then so much discontented with their situation, thought that the bishop strangely neglected his episcopal duties in not giving Mr. Hale a better living, and almost reproached her husband because he could not bring himself to say that he wished to leave the parish and undertake the charge of a larger. He would sigh aloud as he answered, that if he could do what he ought in little Helstone he should be thankful. But every day he was more overpowered, the world became more bewildering. At each repeated urgency of his wife, that he would put himself in the way of seeking some preferment, Margaret saw that her father shrank more and more, and she strove at such times to reconcile her mother to Helstone. Mrs. Hale said that the near neighborhood of so many trees affected her health, and Margaret would try to tempt her forth on to the beautiful, broad, upland, sun-streaked, cloud-shadowed common, for she was sure that her mother had accustomed herself too much to an indoors life, seldom extending her walks beyond the church, the school, and the neighboring cottages. This did good for a time, but when the autumn drew on, and the weather became more changeable, her mother's idea of the unhealthiness of the place increased, and she repined even more frequently that her husband, who was more learned than Mr. Hume, a better parish priest than Mr. Hounsworth, should not have met with the preferment that these two former neighbors of theirs had done. This marring of the peace of home by long hours of discontent was what Margaret was unprepared for. She knew, and had rather reveled in the idea, that she should have to give up many luxuries, which had only been troubles and trammels to her freedom in Harley Street. Her keen enjoyment of every sensuous pleasure was balanced finely, if not overbalanced, 
by her conscious pride in being able to do without them all, if need were. But the cloud never came in that quarter of the horizon from which we watch for it. There had been slight complaints and passing regrets on her mother's part over some trifle connected with Hellstone and her father's position there, when Margaret had been spending her holidays at home before. But in the general happiness of the recollection of those times she had forgotten the small details which were not so pleasant. In the latter half of September the autumnal rains and storms came on, and Margaret was obliged to remain more in the house than she had hitherto done. Hellstone was at some distance from any neighbours of their own standard of cultivation. "'It is undoubtedly one of the most out-of-the-way places in England,' said Mrs. Hale, in one of her plaintive moods. "'I can't help regretting constantly that Papa has really no one to associate with here. He is so thrown away, seeing no one but farmers and labourers from week's end to week's end. If only we lived at the other side of the parish, it would be something. There we should be almost within walking distance of the Stansfields. Certainly the Gormans would be within a walk.' "'Gormans,' said Margaret, "'are those the Gormans who made their fortunes in trade at Southampton? Oh, I'm glad we don't visit them. I don't like shoppy people. I think we are far better off knowing only cottagers and labourers, and people without pretense.' "'You must not be so fastidious, Margaret dear,' said her mother, secretly thinking of a young and handsome Mr. Gorman, whom she had once met at Mr. Hume's. "'No,' I call mine a very comprehensive taste. I like all people whose occupations have to do with land. I like soldiers and sailors, and the three learned professions, as they call them. I'm sure you don't want me to admire butchers and bakers and candlestick-makers, do you, Mamma? But the Gormans were neither butchers nor bakers, but very respectable coach-builders. Very well. Coach-building is a trade all the same, and I think a much more useless one than that of butchers or bakers. Oh, how tired I used to be of the drives every day in Aunt Shaw's carriage, and how I longed to walk. And walk Margaret did, in spite of the weather. She was so happy out of doors, at her father's side, that she almost danced, and with the soft violence of the west wind behind her, as she crossed some heath, she seemed to be borne onwards, as lightly and easily as the fallen leaf that was wafted along by the autumnal breeze but the evenings were rather difficult to fill up agreeably. Immediately after tea her father withdrew into his small library, and she and her mother were left alone. Mrs. Hale had never cared much for books, and had discouraged her husband, very early in their married life, in his desire of reading aloud to her while she worked. At one time they had tried backgammon as a resource, but as Mr. Hale grew to take an increasing interest in his school and his parishioners, he found that the interruptions which arose out of these duties were regarded as hardships by his wife, not to be accepted as the natural condition of his profession, but to be regretted and struggled against by her as they severally arose. So he withdrew, while the children were yet young, into his library, to spend his evenings, if he were at home, in reading the speculative and metaphysical books which were his delight. When Margaret had been here before, she had brought down with her a great box of books, recommended by masters or governess, and had found the summer's day all too short to get through the reading she had to do before her return to town. Now there were only the well-bound, little-read English classics, which were weeded out of her father's library to fill up the small bookshelves in the drawing-room. Thompson's Seasons, Haley's Cowper, Middleton's Cicero, 
were by far the lightest, newest, and most amusing. The bookshelves did not afford much resource. Margaret told her mother every particular of her London life, to all of which Mrs. Hale listened with interest, sometimes amused and questioning, at others a little inclined to compare her sister's circumstances of ease and comfort with the narrower means at Helstone Vicarage. On such evenings Margaret was apt to stop talking rather abruptly, and listen to the drip, drip of the rain upon the leads of the little bow-window. Once or twice Margaret found herself mechanically counting the repetition of the monotonous sound, while she wondered if she might venture to put a question on a subject very near to her heart, and ask where Frederick was now, what he was doing, how long it was since they had heard from him. But a consciousness that her mother's delicate health and positive dislike to Helstone, all dated from the time of the mutiny in which Frederick had been engaged, the full account of which Margaret had never heard, and which now seemed doomed to be buried in sad oblivion, made her pause and turn away from the subject each time she approached it. When she was with her mother, her father seemed the best person to apply to for information, and when with him, she thought that she could speak more easily to her mother. Probably there was nothing much to be heard that was new. In one of the letters she had received before leaving Harley Street, her father had told her that they had heard from Frederick. He was still at Rio, and very well in health, and sent his best love to her, which was dry bones, but not the living intelligence she longed for. Frederick was always spoken of, in the rare times when his name was mentioned, as poor Frederick. His room was kept exactly as he had left it, and was regularly dusted, and put into order by Dixon, Mrs. Hale's maid, who touched no other part of the household work, but always remembered the day when she had been engaged by Lady Beersford, as lady's maid to Sir John's wards, the pretty Miss Beersford's, the bells at Rutlandshire. Dixon had always considered Mr. Hale as the blight which had fallen upon her young lady's prospects in life. If Miss Beersford had not been in such a hurry to marry a poor country clergyman, there was no knowing what she might have become. But Dixon was too loyal to desert her in her affliction and downfall, alias her married life. She remained with her, and was devoted to her interests, always conducting herself as the good and protecting fairy, whose duty it was to baffle the malignant giant, Mr. Hale. Mr. Frederick had been her favorite and pride, and it was with a little softening of her dignified look and manner that she went in weekly to arrange the chamber as carefully as if he might be coming home that very evening. Margaret could not help believing that there had been some late intelligence of Frederick, unknown to her mother, which was making her father anxious and uneasy. Mrs. Hale did not seem to perceive any alteration in her husband's looks or ways. His spirits were always tender and gentle, readily affected by any small piece of intelligence concerning the welfare of others. He would be depressed for many days after witnessing a deathbed or hearing of any crime. But now Margaret noticed an absence of mind, as if his thoughts were preoccupied by some subject the oppression of which could not be relieved by any daily action, such as comforting the survivors, or teaching at the school in hope of lessening the evils in the generation to come. Mr. Hale did not go out among his parishioners as much as usual. He was more shut up in his study, was anxious for the village postman, whose summons to the household was a rap on the back kitchen window-shutter, a signal which at one time had often to be repeated before any one was sufficiently alive to the hour of the day, to understand what it was, and attend to him. Now Mr. Hale loitered about the garden if the morning was fine, and if not, 
stood dreamily by the study window until the postman had called or gone down the lane giving a half respectful half confidential shake of the head to the parson who watched him away beyond the sweetbriar hedge and past the great arbutus before he turned into the room to begin his day's work with all the signs of a heavy heart and an occupied mind but margaret was at an age when any apprehension not absolutely based on a knowledge of facts is easily banished for a time by a bright sunny day or some happy outward circumstance and when the brilliant fourteen fine days of october came on her cares were all blown away as lightly as thistledown and she thought of nothing but the glories of the forest the fern harvest was over and now that the rain was gone many a deep glade was accessible into which margaret had only peeped in july and august weather she had learnt drawing with edith and she had sufficiently regretted during the gloom of the bad weather her idle revelling in the beauty of the woodlands while it had yet been fine to make her determined to sketch what she could before the winter fairly set in accordingly she was busy preparing her board one morning when sarah the housemaid threw wide open the drawing-room door and announced mr henry lennox End of chapter two chapter three of north and south by elizabeth gaskell this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne chapter three the more haste the worse speed learn to win a lady's faith nobly as the thing is high bravely as for life and death with a loyal gravity lead her from the festive boards point her to the starry skies guard her by your truthful words pure from courtship's flatteries mrs browning mr henry lennox margaret had been thinking of him only a moment before and remembering his inquiry into her probable occupations at home it was parler du soleil et leon et voir les rayons and the brightness of the sun came over margaret's face as she put down her board and went forward to shake hands with him tell mamma sarah said she mamma and i want to ask you so many questions about edith i am so much obliged to you for coming did i not say that i should asked he in a lower tone than that in which she had spoken but i heard of you so far away in the highlands that i never thought hampshire could come in oh he said more lightly our young couple were playing such foolish pranks running all sorts of risks climbing this mountain sailing that lake that i really thought they needed a mentor to take care of them and indeed they did they were quite beyond my uncle's management and kept the old gentleman in a panic for sixteen hours out of the twenty-four indeed when once i saw how unfit they were to be trusted alone i thought it my duty not to leave them till i had seen them safely embarked at plymouth have you been at plymouth oh edith never named that to be sure she has written in such a hurry lately did they really sail on tuesday really sailed and relieved me from many responsibilities edith gave me all sorts of messages for you i believe i have a little diminutive note somewhere yes here it is oh thank you exclaimed margaret and then half wishing to read it alone and unwatched she made the excuse of going to tell her mother again sarah surely had made some mistake that mr lennox was there when she had left the room he began in his scrutinizing way to look about him 
the little drawing-room was looking its best in the streaming light of the morning sun the middle window in the bow was opened and clustering roses and the scarlet honeysuckle came peeping round the corner the small lawn was gorgeous with verbenas and geraniums of all bright colours but the very brightness outside made the colours within seem poor and faded the carpet was far from new the chintz had been often washed the whole apartment was smaller and shabbier than he had expected as background and framework for margaret herself so queenly he took up one of the books lying on the table it was the paradiso of dante in the proper old italian binding of white vellum and gold by it lay a dictionary and some words copied out in margaret's handwriting they were a dull list of words but somehow he liked looking at them he put them down with a sigh the living is evidently as small as she said it seems strange for the beersfords belong to a good family margaret meanwhile had found her mother it was one of mrs hale's fitful days when everything was a difficulty and a hardship and mr lennox's appearance took this shape although secretly she felt complimented by his thinking it worth while to call it is most unfortunate we are dining early to-day and having nothing but cold meat in order that the servants may get on with their ironing and yet of course we must ask him to dinner edith's brother-in-law and all and your papa is in such low spirits this morning about something i don't know what i went into the study just now and he had his face on the table covering it with his hands i told him i was sure hellstone air did not agree with him any more than it did with me and he suddenly lifted up his head and begged me not to speak a word more against hellstone he could not bear it if there was one place he loved on earth it was hellstone but i am sure for all that it is the damp and relaxing air margaret felt as if a thin cold cloud had come between her and the sun she had listened patiently in hopes that it might be some relief to her mother to unburden herself but now it was time to draw her back to mr lennox papa likes mr lennox they got on together famously at the wedding breakfast i dare say his coming will do papa good and never mind the dinner dear mamma cold meat will do capitally for a lunch which is the light in which mr lennox will most likely look upon a two-o'clock dinner but what are we to do with him till then it is only half-past ten now i'll ask him to go out sketching with me i know he draws and that will take him out of your way mamma only do come in now he will think it so strange if you don't mrs hale took off her black silk apron and smoothed her face she looked a very pretty ladylike woman as she greeted mr lennox with the cordiality due to one who was almost a relation he evidently expected to be asked to spend the day and accepted the invitation with a glad readiness that made mrs hale wish she could add something to the cold beef he was pleased with everything delighted with margaret's idea of going out sketching together would not have mr hale disturbed for the world with the prospect of so soon meeting him at dinner margaret brought out her drawing materials for him to choose from and after the paper and brushes had been duly selected the two set out in the merriest spirits in the world now please just stop here for a minute or two said margaret these are the cottages that haunted me so during the rainy fortnight reproaching me for not having sketched them before they tumbled down and were seen no more truly if they are to be sketched and they are very picturesque we had better not put it off till next year but where shall we sit oh you might have come straight from the chambers in the temple instead of having been two months in the highlands 
look at this beautiful trunk of a tree which the woodcutters have left just in the right place for the light i will put my plaid over it and it will be a regular forest throne with your feet in that puddle for a regal footstool stay i will move and then you can come nearer this way who lives in these cottages they were built by squatters fifty or sixty years ago one is uninhabited the foresters are going to take it down as soon as the old man who lives in the other is dead poor old fellow look there he is i must go and speak to him he is so deaf you will hear all our secrets the old man stood bareheaded in the sun leaning on his stick in the front of his cottage his stiff features relaxed into a slow smile as margaret went up and spoke to him mr lennox hastily introduced the two figures into his sketch and finished up the landscape with a subordinate reference to them as margaret perceived when the time came for getting up putting away water and scraps of paper and exhibiting to each other their sketches she laughed and blushed mr lennox watched her countenance now i call that treacherous said she i little thought you were making old isaac and me into subjects when you told me to ask him the history of these cottages it was irresistible you can't know how strong a temptation it was i hardly dare tell you how much i shall like this sketch he was not quite sure whether she heard this latter sentence before she went to the brook to wash her palette she came back rather flushed but looking perfectly innocent and unconscious he was glad of it for the speech had slipped from him unawares a rare thing in the case of a man who premeditated his actions so much as henry lennox the aspect of home was all right and bright when they reached it the clouds on her mother's brow had cleared off under the propitious influence of a brace of carp most opportunely presented by a neighbor mr hale had returned from his morning's round and was awaiting his visitor just outside the wicket gate that led into the garden he looked a complete gentleman in his rather threadbare coat and well-worn hat margaret was proud of her father she had always a fresh and tender pride in seeing how favorably he impressed every stranger still her quick eye sought over his face and found there traces of some unusual disturbance which was only put aside not cleared away mr hale asked to look at their sketches i think you have made the tints on the thatch too dark have you not as he returned margaret's to her and held out his hand for mr lennox's which was withheld from him one moment no more no papa i don't think i have the house leak and stone crop have grown so much darker in the rain is it not like papa she said peeping over his shoulder as he looked at the figures in mr lennox's drawing yes very like your figure and way of holding yourself is capital and it is just poor isaac's stiff way of stooping his long rheumatic back what is this hanging from the branch of the tree not a bird's nest surely oh no that is my bonnet i can never draw with my bonnet on it makes my head so hot i wonder if i could manage figures there are so many people about here whom i should like to sketch i should say that a likeness you very much wish to take you would always succeed in said mr lennox i have great faith in the power of will i think myself i have succeeded pretty well in yours mr hale had preceded them into the house while margaret was lingering to pluck some roses with which to adorn her morning-gown for dinner a regular london girl would understand the implied meaning of that speech thought mr lennox she would be up to looking through every speech that a young man made her for the arriere pensee of a compliment but i don't believe margaret 
stay exclaimed he let me help you and he gathered for her some velvety cremoisy roses that were above her reach and then dividing the spoil he placed two in his buttonhole and sent her in pleased and happy to arrange her flowers the conversation at dinner flowed on quietly and agreeably there were plenty of questions to be asked on both sides the latest intelligence which each could give of mrs shaw's movements in italy to be exchanged and in the interest of what was said the unpretending simplicity of parsonage ways above all in the neighbourhood of margaret mr lennox forgot the little feeling of disappointment with which he had first perceived that she had spoken but the simple truth when she had described her father's living as very small margaret my child you might have gathered us some pears for our dessert said mr hale as the hospitable luxury of a freshly decanted bottle of wine was placed on the table mrs hale was hurried it seemed as if desserts were impromptu and unusual things at the parsonage whereas if mr hale would only have looked behind him he would have seen biscuits and marmalade and what not all arranged in formal order on the sideboard but the idea of pears had taken possession of mr hale's mind and was not to be got rid of there are a few brown buries against the south wall which are worth all foreign fruits and preserves run margaret and get us some i propose that we adjourn into the garden and eat them there said mr lennox nothing is so delicious as to set one's teeth into the crisp juicy fruit warm and scented by the sun the worst is the wasps are impudent enough to dispute it with one even at the very crisis and summit of enjoyment he rose as if to follow margaret who had disappeared through the window he only awaited mrs hale's permission she would rather have wound up the dinner in the proper way and with all the ceremonies which had gone on so smoothly hitherto especially as she and dixon had got out the finger-glasses from the storeroom on purpose to be as correct as became general shaw's widow's sister but as mr hale got up directly and prepared to accompany his guest she could only submit i shall arm myself with a knife said mr hale the days of eating fruit so primitively as you describe are over with me i must pare it and quarter it before i can enjoy it margaret made a plate for the pears out of a beet-root leaf which threw up their brown-cold colour admirably mr lennox looked more at her than at the pears but her father inclined to cull fastidiously the very zest and perfection of the hour he had stolen from his anxiety chose daintily the ripest fruit and sat down on the garden bench to enjoy it at his leisure margaret and mr lennox strolled along the little terrace walk under the south wall where the bees still hummed and worked busily in their hives what a perfect life you seem to live here i have always felt rather contemptuously toward the poets before with their wishes mine be a cot beside a hill and that sort of thing but now i am afraid that the truth is i have been nothing better than a cockney just now i feel as if twenty years hard study of law would be amply rewarded by one year of such exquisite serene life as this such skies looking up such crimson and amber foliage so perfectly motionless as that pointing to some of the great forest trees which shut in the garden as if it were a nest you must please to remember that our skies are not always as deep a blue as they are now we have rain and our leaves do fall and get sodden though i think hellstone is about as perfect a place as any in the world recollect how you rather scorned my description of it one evening in harley street a village in a tale scorned margaret that's a rather hard word 
Perhaps it is. Only I know I should have liked to have talked to you of what I was very full at the time, and you, what must I call it then, spoke disrespectfully of Hellstone as a mere village in a tale. I will never do so again, said he warmly. They turned the corner of the walk. I could almost wish, Margaret. He stopped and hesitated. It was so unusual for the fluent lawyer to hesitate that Margaret looked up at him, in a little state of questioning wonder, but in an instant, from what about him she could not tell, she wished herself back with her mother, her father, anywhere away from him, for she was sure that he was going to say something to which she should not know what to reply. In another moment the strong pride that was in her came to conquer her sudden agitation, which she hoped he had not perceived. Of course she could answer, and answer the right thing, and it was poor and despicable of her to shrink from hearing any speech, as if she had not power to put an end to it with her high maidenly dignity. "'Margaret,' said he, taking her by surprise, and getting sudden possession of her hand, so that she was forced to stand still and listening, despising herself for the fluttering at her heart all the time. "'Margaret, I wish you did not like Hellstone so much, did not seem so perfectly calm and happy here. I have been hoping for these three months past to find you regretting London, and London friends, a little, enough to make you listen more kindly, for she was quietly but firmly striving to extricate her hand from his grasp. To one who has not much to offer, it is true, nothing but prospects in the future, but who does love you, Margaret, almost in spite of himself. Margaret, have I startled you too much? Speak, for he saw her lips quivering almost as if she were going to cry. She made a strong effort to be calm. She would not speak till she had succeeded in mastering her voice. And then she said, I was startled. I did not know that you cared for me in that way. I have always thought of you as a friend, and, please, I would rather go on thinking of you so. I don't like to be spoken to as you have been doing. I cannot answer you as you want me to do, and yet I should feel so sorry if I vexed you. Margaret, said he, looking into her eyes, which met his with their open, straight look, expressive of the utmost good faith and reluctance to give pain. Do you, he was going to say, love anyone else, but it seemed as if this question would be an insult to the pure serenity of those eyes. Forgive me, I have been too abrupt. I am punished. Only let me hope. Give me the poor comfort of telling me you have never seen anyone whom you could— Again a pause. He could not end his sentence. Margaret reproached herself acutely as the cause of his distress. Ah, if you had but never got this fancy into your head! It was such a pleasure to think of you as a friend. But I may hope may I not, Margaret, that some time you will think of me as a lover? Not yet, I see. There is no hurry. But some time. She was silent for a minute or two, trying to discover the truth as it was in her own heart, before replying. Then she said, I have never thought of you, but as a friend. I like to think of you so, but I am sure I could never think of you as anything else. Pray, let us both forget all this. 
disagreeable she was going to say but stopped short conversation has taken place he paused before he replied then in his habitual coldness of tone he answered of course as your feelings are so decided and as this conversation has been so evidently unpleasant to you it had better not be remembered that is all very fine in theory that plan of forgetting whatever is painful but it will be somewhat difficult for me at least to carry it into execution you are vexed she said sadly yet how can i help it she looked so truly grieved as she said this that he struggled for a moment with his real disappointment and then answered more cheerfully but still with a little hardness in his tone you should make allowances for the mortification not only of a lover margaret but of a man not given to romance in general prudent worldly as some people call me who has been carried out of his usual habits by the force of a passion well we will say no more of that but in the one outlet which he has formed for the deeper and better feelings of his nature he meets with rejection and repulse i shall have to console myself with scorning my own folly a struggling barrister to think of matrimony margaret could not answer this the whole tone of it annoyed her it seemed to touch on and call out all the points of difference which had often repelled her in him while yet he was the pleasantest man the most sympathizing friend the person of all others who understood her best in harley street she felt a tinge of contempt mingle itself with her pain at having refused him her beautiful lip curled in slight disdain it was well that having made the round of the garden they came suddenly upon mr hale whose whereabouts had been quite forgotten by them he had not yet finished the pear which he had delicately peeled in one long strip of silver paper thinness and which he was enjoying in a deliberate manner it was like the story of the eastern king who dipped his head into a basin of water at the magician's command and ere he instantly took it out went through the experience of a lifetime margaret felt stunned and unable to recover her self-possession enough to join in the trivial conversation that ensued between her father and mr lennox she was grave and little disposed to speak full of wonder when mr lennox would go and allow her to relax into thought on the events of the last quarter of an hour he was almost as anxious to take his departure as she was for him to leave but a few minutes light and careless talking carried on at whatever effort was a sacrifice which he owed to his mortified vanity or his self-respect he glanced from time to time at her sad and pensive face i am not so indifferent to her as she believes he thought to himself i do not give up hope before a quarter of an hour was over he had fallen into a way of conversing with quiet sarcasm speaking of life in london and life in the country as if he were conscious of his second mocking self and afraid of his own satire mr hale was puzzled his visitor was a different man to what he had seen him before at the wedding breakfast and at dinner to-day a lighter cleverer more worldly man and as such dissonant to mr hale it was a relief to all three when mr lennox said that he must go directly if he meant to catch the five o'clock train they proceeded to the house to find mrs hale and wish her good-bye at the last moment henry lennox's real self broke through the crust margaret don't despise me i have a heart notwithstanding this good-for-nothing way of talking as proof of it i believe i love you more than ever 
if I do not hate you, for the disdain with which you have listened to me during this last half-hour. Good-bye, Margaret. Margaret. End of chapter 3「Chapter Four Doubts and Difficulties Cast me upon some naked shore, where I may track only the print of some sad wreck. If thou be there, though the seas roar, I shall no gentler calm implore. Havington he was gone. The house was shut up for the evening. No more deep blue skies or crimson and amber tints. Margaret went up to dress for the early tea, finding Dixon in a pretty temper from the interruption which a visitor had naturally occasioned on a busy day. She showed it by brushing away viciously at Margaret's hair, under pretense of being in a great hurry to go to Mrs. Hale. Yet, after all, Margaret had to wait a long time in the drawing-room before her mother came down. She sat by herself at the fire, with unlighted candles on the table behind her, thinking over the day, the happy walk, happy sketching, cheerful pleasant dinner, and the uncomfortable, miserable walk in the garden. How different men were to women! Here was she disturbed and unhappy, because her instinct had made anything but a refusal impossible, while he, not many minutes after he had met with a rejection of what ought to have been the deepest, holiest proposal of his life, could speak as if briefs, success, and all its superficial consequences of a good house, clever and agreeable society, were the sole avowed objects of his desires. Oh, dear! How she could have loved him, if he had but been different, with a difference which she felt, on reflection, to be one that went low, deep down. Then she took it into her head that, after all, his lightness might be but assumed, to cover a bitterness of disappointment which would have been stamped on her own heart if she had loved and been rejected. Her mother came into the room before this whirl of thoughts was adjusted into anything like order. Margaret had to shake off the recollections of what had been done and said through the day, and turn a sympathizing listener to the account of how Dixon had complained that the ironing blanket had been burnt again and how Susan Lightfoot had been seen with artificial flowers in her bonnet, thereby giving evidence of a vain and giddy character. Mr. Hale sipped his tea in abstracted silence. Margaret had the responses all to herself. She wondered how her father and mother could be so forgetful, so regardless of their companion through the day, as never to mention his name. She forgot that he had not made them an offer. After tea Mr. Hale got up, and stood with his elbow on the chimney-piece, leaning his head on his hand, musing over something, and from time to time sighing deeply. Mrs. Hale went out to consult with Dixon about some winter clothing for the poor. Margaret was preparing her mother's worsted work, and rather shrinking from the thought of the long evening, and wishing bedtime were come that she might go over the events of the day again. "'Margaret,' said Mr. Hale, at last, in a sort of sudden, desperate way, that made her start. "'Is that tapestry thing of immediate consequence? "'I mean, can you leave it and come into my study? "'I want to speak to you about something very serious to us all.' 
very serious to us all mr lennox had never had the opportunity of having any private conversation with her father after her refusal or else that would indeed have been a very serious affair in the first place margaret felt guilty and ashamed of having grown so much into a woman as to be thought of in marriage and secondly she did not know if her father might not be displeased that she had taken upon herself to decline mr lennox's proposal but she soon felt it was not about anything which having only lately and suddenly occurred could have given rise to any complicated thoughts that her father wished to speak to her he made her take a chair by him he stirred the fire snuffed the candles and sighed once or twice before he could make up his mind to say and it came out with a jerk after all margaret i'm going to leave helstone leave helstone papa but why mr hale did not answer for a minute or two he played with some papers on the table in a nervous and confused manner opening his lips to speak several times but closing them again without having the courage to utter a word margaret could not bear the sight of the suspense which was even more distressing to her father than to herself but why dear papa do tell me he looked up at her suddenly and then said with a slow and enforced calmness because i must no longer be a minister in the church of england margaret had imagined nothing less than that some of the preferments which her mother so much desired had befallen her father at last something that would force him to leave beautiful beloved helstone and perhaps compel him to go and live in some of the stately and silent closes which margaret had seen from time to time in cathedral towns they were grand and imposing places but if to go there it was necessary to leave helstone as a home for ever that would have been a sad long lingering pain but nothing to the shock she received from mr hale's last speech what could he mean it was all the worse for being so mysterious the aspect of piteous distress on his face almost as imploring a merciful and kind judgment from his child gave her a sudden sickening could he have been implicated in anything frederick had done frederick was an outlaw had her father out of natural love for his son connived at any oh what is it do speak papa tell me all why can you no longer be a clergyman surely if the bishop were told all we know about frederick and the hard unjust it is nothing about frederick the bishop would have nothing to do with that it is all myself margaret i will tell you about it i will answer any questions this once but after to-night let us never speak of it again i can meet the consequences of my painful miserable doubts but it is an effort beyond me to speak of what has caused me so much suffering doubts papa doubts as to religion asked margaret more shocked than ever no not doubts as to religion not the slightest injury to that he paused margaret sighed as if standing on the verge of some new horror he began again speaking rapidly as if to get over a set task you could not understand it all if i told you my anxiety for years past to know whether i had any right to hold my living my efforts to quench my smouldering doubts by the authority of the church oh margaret how i love the holy church from which i am to be shut out 
He could not go on for a moment or two. Margaret could not tell what to say. It seemed to her as terribly mysterious as if her father were about to turn Mahometan. "'I've been reading to-day of the two thousand who were ejected from their churches,' continued Mr. Hale, smiling faintly, "'trying to steal some of their bravery. But it is of no use. No use. I cannot help feeling it acutely.' "'But, Papa, have you well considered—oh, it seems so terrible, so shocking,' said Margaret, suddenly bursting into tears. The one staid foundation of her home, of her idea of her beloved father, seemed reeling and rocking. What could she say? What was to be done? The sight of her distress made Mr. Hale nerve himself, in order to try and comfort her. He swallowed down the dry, choking sobs which had been heaving up from his heart hitherto, and going to his bookcase he took down a volume, which he had often been reading lately, and from which he thought he had derived strength to enter upon the course in which he was now embarked. "'Listen, dear Margaret,' said he, putting one arm round her waist. She took his hand in hers and grasped it tight, but she could not lift up her head nor indeed could she attend to what he read, so great was her internal agitation. This is the soliloquy of one who was once a clergyman in a country parish, like me. It was written by Mr. Oldfield, minister of Carsington, in Derbyshire, a hundred and sixty years ago, or more. His trials are over. He fought the good fight. These last two sentences he spoke low, as if to himself. Then he read aloud, whence thou canst no longer continue in thy work without dishonour to God, discredit to religion, foregoing thy integrity, wounding conscience, spoiling thy peace, and hazarding the loss of thy salvation, in a word, when the conditions upon which thou must continue, if thou wilt continue, in thy employments are sinful, and unwarranted by the word of God, thou mayest, yea, thou must believe that God will turn thy very silence, suspension, deprivation, and laying aside, to his glory, and the advancement of the gospel's interest. When God will not use thee in one kind, yet he will in another. A soul that desires to serve and honour him shall never want opportunity to do it, nor must thou so limit the Holy One of Israel, as to think he hath but one way in which he can glorify himself by thee. He can do it by thy silence as well as by thy preaching thy laying aside as well as thy continuance in thy work. It is not pretense of doing God the greatest service, or performing the weightiest duty, that will excuse the least sin, though that sin capacitated, or gave us opportunity for doing that duty. Thou wilt have little thanks, O my soul, if, when thou art charged with corrupting God's worship, falsifying thy vows, thou pretendest a necessity for it in order to a continuance in the ministry. As he read this, and glanced at much more which he did not read, he gained resolution for himself, and felt as if he too could be brave and firm in doing what he believed to be right. But as he ceased, he heard Margaret's low, convulsive sob, and his courage sunk down under the keen sense of suffering. "'Margaret, dear,' said he, drawing her close, "'think of the early martyrs. Think of the thousands who have suffered.' "'But, father,' said she, 
suddenly lifting up her flushed tear-wet face the early martyrs suffered for the truth while you oh dear dear papa i suffer for conscience's sake my child said he with a dignity that was only tremulous from the acute sensitiveness of his character i must do what my conscience bids i have borne long with self-reproach that would have roused any mind less torpid and cowardly than mine he shook his head as he went on your poor mother's fond wish gratified at last in the mocking way in which over-fond wishes are too often fulfilled sodom apples as they are has brought on this crisis for which i ought to be and i hope i am thankful it is not a month since the bishop offered me another living if i had accepted it i should have had to make a fresh declaration of conformity to the liturgy at my institution margaret i tried to do it i tried to content myself with simply refusing the additional preferment and stopping quietly here strangling my conscience now as i had strained it before god forgive me he rose and walked up and down the room speaking low words of self-reproach and humiliation of which margaret was thankful to hear but few at last he said margaret i return to the old sad burden we must leave hellstone yes i see but when i have written to the bishop i dare say i have told you so but i forgot things just now said mr hale collapsing into his depressed manner as soon as he came to talk of hard matter-of-fact details informing him of my intention to resign this vicarage he has been most kind he has used arguments and expostulations all in vain in vain they are but what i tried upon myself without avail i shall have to take my deed of resignation and wait upon the bishop myself to bid him farewell that will be a trial but worse far worse will be the parting from my dear people there is a curate appointed to read prayers a mr brown he will come to stay with us to-morrow next sunday i preach my farewell sermon was it to be so sudden then thought margaret and yet perhaps it was as well lingering would only add stings to the pain it was better to be stunned into numbness by hearing of all these arrangements which seemed to be nearly completed before she had been told what does mamma say asked she with a deep sigh to her surprise her father began to walk about again before he answered at length he stopped and replied margaret i am a poor coward after all i cannot bear to give pain i know so well your mother's married life has not been all she hoped all she had a right to expect and this will be such a blow to her that i have never had the heart the power to tell her she must be told though now he said looking wistfully at his daughter margaret was almost overpowered with the idea that her mother knew nothing of it all and yet the affair was so far advanced yes indeed she must said margaret perhaps after all she may not oh yes she will she must be shocked as the force of the blow returned upon herself in trying to realize how another would take it where are we to go to she said at last 
struck with a fresh wonder as to their future plans, if plans indeed her father had. To Milton Northern, he answered, with a dull indifference, for he had perceived that, although his daughter's love had made her cling to him, and for a moment strive to soothe him with her love, yet the keenness of pain was as fresh as ever in her mind. Milton Northern, the manufacturing town in Darkshire. Yes, said he, in the same despondent, indifferent way. Why there, papa? asked she. Because there I can earn bread for my family. Because I know no one there, and no one knows Helstone, or can ever talk to me about it. Bread for your family? I thought you and mamma had— And then she stopped, checking her natural interest regarding their future life, as she saw the gathering gloom on her father's brow. But he, with his quick, intuitive sympathy, read in her face, as in a mirror, the reflections of his own moody depression, and turned it off with an effort. "'You shall be told all, Margaret. Only help me to tell your mother. I think I could do anything but that. The idea of her distress turns me sick with dread. If I tell you all, perhaps you could break it to her to-morrow, I am going out for the day, to bid Farmer Dobson and the poor people on Brace Common good-bye. Would you dislike breaking it to her very much, Margaret? Margaret did dislike it, did shrink from it more than from anything she had ever had to do in her life before. She could not speak, all at once. Her father said, You dislike it very much, don't you, Margaret? Then she conquered herself and said, with a bright strong look on her face, it is a painful thing, but it must be done, and I will do it as well as ever I can. You must have many painful things to do. Mr. Hale shook his head despondingly. He pressed her hand in token of gratitude. Margaret was nearly upset again into a burst of crying. To turn her thoughts, she said, Now tell me, Papa, what our plans are. You and Mamma have some money, independent of the income from the living, have not you? At Shaw has, I know. Yes, I suppose we have about a hundred and seventy pounds a year of our own. Seventy of that has always gone to Frederick, since he has been abroad. I don't know if he wants it all, he continued in a hesitating manner. He must have some pay for serving with the Spanish army. Frederick must not suffer, said Margaret decidedly, in a foreign country, so unjustly treated by his own. A hundred is left. Could not you and I and Mamma live on a hundred a year in some very cheap, very quiet part of England? Oh, I think we could. No, said Mr. Hale, that would not answer. I must do something. I must make myself busy, to keep off morbid thoughts. Besides, in a country parish I should be so painfully reminded of Helstone and my duties here. I could not bear it, Margaret." and a hundred a year would go a very little way, after the necessary wants of housekeeping are met, towards providing your mother with all the comforts she has been accustomed to, and ought to have. No, we must go to Milton. That is settled. I can always decide better by myself, and not influenced by those whom I love," said he, as a half-apology for having arranged so much before he had told any one of his family of his intentions. I cannot stand objections. They make me so undecided. Margaret resolved to keep silence. After all, what did it signify where they went, 
compared to the one terrible change. Mr. Hale continued. A few months ago, when my misery of doubt became more than I could bear without speaking, I wrote to Mr. Bell. You remember Mr. Bell, Margaret? No, I never saw him, I think, but I know who he is. Frederick's godfather, your old tutor at Oxford, don't you mean? Yes. He is a fellow of Plymouth College there. He is a native of Milton Northern, I believe. At any rate, he has property there, which has very much increased in value since Milton has become such a large manufacturing town. Well, I had reason to suspect, to imagine. I had better say nothing about it, however. But I felt sure of sympathy for Mr. Bell. I don't know that he gave me much strength. He has lived an easy life in his college all his days. But he has been as kind as can be. And it is owing to him we are going to Milton. How? said Margaret. Why, he has tenants, and houses, and mills there. So, though he dislikes the place, too bustling for one of his habits, he is obliged to keep up some sort of connection and he tells me that he hears there is a good opening for a private tutor there. A private tutor, said Margaret, looking scornful. What in the world do manufacturers want with the classics, or literature, or the accomplishments of a gentleman? Oh, said her father, some of them seem really to be fine fellows, conscious of their own deficiencies, which is more than many a man at Oxford is. Some want resolutely to learn, though they have come to man's estate. Some want their children to be better instructed than they themselves have been. At any rate, there is an opening, as I have said, for a private tutor. Mr. Bell has recommended me to a Mr. Thornton, a tenant of his, and a very intelligent man, as far as I can judge from his letters. And in Milton, Margaret, I shall find a busy life, if not a happy one, and people in scenes so different that I shall never be reminded of Hellstone. There was a secret motive, as Margaret knew from her own feelings. It would be different, discordant as it was, with almost a detestation for all she had ever heard of the north of England, the manufacturers, the people, the wild and bleak country. There was this one recommendation. It would be different from Helstone, and could never remind them of that beloved place. "'When do we go?' asked Margaret, after a short silence. I do not know exactly. I wanted to talk it over with you. You see, your mother knows nothing about it yet. But I think, in a fortnight, after my deed of resignation is sent in, I shall have no right to remain. Margaret was almost stunned. In a fortnight? No. No, not exactly to a day. Nothing is fixed, said her father, with anxious hesitation, as he noticed the filmy sorrow that had come over her eyes, and the sudden change in her complexion. But she recovered herself immediately. "'Yes, Papa, it had better be fixed soon, and decidedly, as you say. Only Mamma to know nothing about it. It is that that is the great perplexity.' "'Poor Maria,' replied Mr. Hale tenderly. "'Poor, poor Maria. Oh, if I were not married!' If I were but myself in the world, how easy it would be, as it is. Margaret, I dare not tell her. No, said Margaret sadly. I will do it. Give me till tomorrow evening to choose my time, 
oh papa cried she with sudden passionate entreaty say tell me it is a nightmare a horrid dream not the real waking truth you cannot mean that you are really going to leave the church to give up hellstone to be forever separate from me from mamma led away by some delusion some temptation you do not really mean it mr hale sat in rigid stillness while she spoke then he looked her in the face and said in a slow hoarse measured way i do mean it margaret you must not deceive yourself into doubting the reality of my words my fixed intention and resolve he looked at her in the same steady stony manner for some moments after he had done speaking she too gazed back with pleading eyes before she would believe that it was irrevocable then she arose and went without another word or look towards the door as her fingers were on the handle he called her back he was standing by the fireplace shrunk and stooping but as she came near he drew himself up to his full height and placing his hands on her head he said solemnly the blessing of god be upon thee my child and may he restore you to his church responded she out of the fullness of her heart the next moment she feared lest this answer to his blessing might be irreverent wrong might hurt him as coming from his daughter and she threw her arms round his neck he held her to him for a minute or two she heard him murmur to himself the martyrs and confessors had even more pain to bear i will not shrink they were startled by hearing mrs hale inquiring for her daughter they started asunder in the full consciousness of all that was before them mr hale hurriedly said go margaret go i shall be out all to-morrow before night you will have told your mother yes she replied and she returned to the drawing-room in a stunned and dizzy state. End of chapter 4。Chapter 5 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。Read by Marianne。Chapter 5 Decision I ask thee for a thoughtful love, through constant watching wise, to meet the glad with joyful smiles, and to wipe the weeping eyes, and a heart at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize. Anonymous Margaret made a good listener to all her mother's little plans for adding some small comforts to the lot of the poor parishioners. She could not help listening, though each new project was a stab to her heart. By the time the frost had set in, they should be far away from Helstone old simon's rheumatism might be bad and his eyesight worse there would be no one to go and read to him and comfort him with little porringers of broth and good red flannel or if there was it would be a stranger and the old man would watch in vain for her mary domville's little crippled boy would crawl in vain to the door and look for her coming through the forest these poor friends would never understand why she had forsaken them and there were many others besides papa has always spent the income he derived from his living in the parish i am perhaps encroaching upon the next dues but the winter is likely to be severe and our poor old people must be helped oh mamma 
let us do all we can said margaret eagerly not seeing the prudential side of the question only grasping at the idea that they were rendering such help for the last time we may not be here long do you feel ill my darling asked mrs hale anxiously misunderstanding margaret's hint of the uncertainty of their stay at helstone you look pale and tired it is this soft damp unhealthy air no no mamma it is not that it is delicious air it smells of the freshest purest fragrance after the smokiness of harley street but i am tired it surely must be near bedtime not far off it is half-past nine you had better go to bed at once dear ask dixon for some gruel i will come and see you as soon as you are in bed i am afraid you have taken cold or the bad air from some of the stagnant ponds oh mamma said margaret faintly smiling as she kissed her mother i am quite well don't alarm yourself about me i am only tired margaret went upstairs to soothe her mother's anxiety she submitted to a basin of gruel she was lying languidly in bed when mrs hale came up to make some last inquiries and kiss her before going to her own room for the night but the instant she heard her mother's door locked she sprang out of bed and throwing her dressing-gown on she began to pace up and down the room until the creaking of one of the boards reminded her that she must make no noise she went and curled herself up on the window-seat in the small deeply recessed window that morning when she had looked out her heart had danced at seeing the bright clear lights on the church-tower which foretold of a fine and sunny day this evening sixteen hours at most had passed by she sat down too full of sorrow to cry but with a dull cold pain which seemed to have pressed the youth and buoyancy out of her heart never to return mr henry lennox's visit his offer was like a dream a thing beside her actual life the hard reality was that her father had so admitted tempting doubts into his mind as to become a schismatic an outcast all the charges consequent upon this grouped themselves around that one great blighting fact she looked out upon the dark grey lines of the church tower square and straight in the centre of the view cutting against the deep blue transparent depths beyond into which she gazed and felt that she might gaze for ever seeing at every moment some farther distance and yet no sign of god it seemed to her at the moment as if the earth was more utterly desolate than if girt in by an iron dome beyond which there might be the ineffable peace and glory of the almighty those never-ending depths of space in their still serenity were more mocking to her than any material bounds could be shutting in the cries of earth's sufferers which now might ascend into that infinite splendour of vastness and be lost lost for ever before they reached his throne in this mood her father came in unheard the moonlight was strong enough to let him see his daughter in her unusual place and attitude he came to her and touched her shoulder before she was aware that he was there margaret i heard you were up i could not help coming in to ask you to pray with me to say the lord's prayer that will do good to both of us mr hale and margaret knelt by the window-seat he looking up she bowed down in humble shame god was there close around them hearing her father's whispered words 
her father might be a heretic but had not she in her despairing doubts not five minutes before shown herself a far more utter sceptic she spoke not a word but stole to bed after her father had left her like a child ashamed of its fault if the world was full of perplexing problems she would trust and only ask to see the one step needful for the hour mr lennox his visit his proposal the remembrance of which had been so rudely pushed aside by the subsequent events of the day haunted her dreams that night he was climbing up some tree of fabulous height to reach the branch whereon was slung her bonnet he was falling and she was struggling to save him but held back by some invisible powerful hand he was dead and yet with the shifting of the scene she was once more in the harley street drawing-room talking to him as of old and still with a consciousness all the time that she had seen him killed by that terrible fall miserable unresting night ill preparation for the coming day she awoke with a start unrefreshed and conscious of some reality worse than her feverish dreams it all came back upon her not merely the sorrow but the terrible discord in the sorrow where to what distance apart had her father wandered led by doubts which were to her temptations of the evil one she longed to ask and yet would not have heard for all the world the fine crisp morning made her mother feel particularly well and happy at breakfast time she talked on planning village kindnesses unheeding the silence of her husband and the monosyllabic answers of margaret before the things were cleared away mr hale got up he leaned one hand on the table as if to support himself i shall not be at home at all till evening i am going to bracy common and will ask farmer dobson to give me something for dinner i shall be back to tea at seven he did not look at either of them but margaret knew what he meant by seven the announcement must be made to her mother mr hale would have delayed making it till half-past six but margaret was of different stuff she could not bear the impending weight on her mind all the day long better to get the worst over the day would be too short to comfort her mother but while she stood by the window thinking how to begin and waiting for the servant to have left the room her mother had gone upstairs to put on her things to go to the school she came down ready equipped in a brisker mood than usual mother come round the garden with me this morning just one turn said margaret putting her arm round mrs hale's waist they passed through the open window mrs hale spoke said something margaret could not tell what her eye caught on a bee entering a deep-belled flower when that bee flew forth with his spoil she would begin that should be the sign out he came mamma papa's going to leave hellstone she blurted forth he is going to leave the church and live in milton northern there were the three hard facts hardly spoken what makes you say so asked mrs hale in a surprised incredulous voice who has been telling you such nonsense papa himself said margaret longing to say something gentle and consoling but literally not knowing how they were close to a garden bench mrs hale sat down and began to cry i don't understand you she said either you have made some great mistake or i don't quite understand you 
no mother i have made no mistake papa has written to the bishop saying that he has such doubts that he cannot conscientiously remain a priest of the church of england and that he must give up hellstone he has also consulted mr bell frederick's godfather you know mamma and it is arranged that we go to live in milton northern mrs hale looked up in margaret's face all the time she was speaking these words the shadow on her countenance told that she at least believed in the truth of what she said i don't think it can be true said mrs hale at length he would surely have told me before it came to this it came strongly upon margaret's mind that her mother ought to have been told that whatever her faults of discontent and repining might have been it was an error in her father to have left her to learn his change of opinion and his approaching change of life from her better informed child margaret sat down by her mother and took her unresisting head on her breast bending her own soft cheeks down caressingly to touch her face dear darling mamma we were so afraid of giving you pain papa felt so acutely you know you are not strong and there must have been such terrible suspense to go through when did he tell you margaret yesterday only yesterday replied margaret detecting the jealousy which prompted the inquiry poor papa trying to divert her mother's thoughts into compassionate sympathy for all her father had gone through mrs hale raised her head what does he mean by having doubts she asked surely he does not mean that he thinks differently that he knows better than the church margaret shook her head and the tears came into her eyes as her mother touched the bare nerve of her own regret can't the bishop set him right asked mrs hale half impatiently i'm afraid not said margaret but i did not ask i could not bear to hear what he might answer it is all settled at any rate he is going to leave Helstone in a fortnight i am not sure if he did not say he had sent in his deed of resignation in a fortnight exclaimed mrs hale i do think this is very strange not right at all i call it very unfeeling said she beginning to take relief in tears he has doubts you say and gives up his living and all without consulting me i dare say if he had told me his doubts at the first i could have nipped them in the bud mistaken as margaret felt her father's conduct to have been she could not bear to hear it blamed by her mother she knew that his very reserve had originated in a tenderness for her which might be cowardly but was not unfeeling i almost hoped you might have been glad to leave hellstone mamma she said after a pause you have never been well in this air you know you can't think the smoky air of a manufacturing town whole chimneys and dirt like milton northern would be better than this air which is pure and sweet if it is too soft and relaxing fancy living in the middle of factories and factory people though of course if your father leaves the church we shall not be admitted into society anywhere it will be such a disgrace to us poor dear sir john it is well he is not alive to see what your father has come to every day after dinner when i was a girl living with your aunt shaw at beersford court sir john used to give for the first toast church and king and down with the rump 
Margaret was glad that her mother's thoughts were turned away from the fact of her husband's silence to her on the point which must have been so near his heart. Next to the serious vital anxiety as to the nature of her father's doubts, this was the one circumstance of the case that gave Margaret the most pain. "'You know, we have very little society here, Mamma. The Gormans, who are our nearest neighbours, to call society, and we hardly ever see them, have been in trade just as much as these Milton Northern people.' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Hale, almost indignantly. "'But, at any rate, the Gormans made carriages for half the gentry of the county, and were brought into some kind of intercourse with them. But these factory people! Who on earth wears cotton that can afford linen?' "'Well, Mamma, I give up the cotton-spinners. I am not standing up for them, any more than for any other tradespeople. Only we shall have little enough to do with them.' "'Why on earth has your father fixed on Milton Northern to live in?' "'Partly,' said Margaret, sighing, "'because it is so different from Halstone. Partly because Mr. Bell says there is an opening there for a private tutor.' "'Private tutor in Milton?' Why can't he go to Oxford and be a tutor to gentlemen? You forget, Mamma. He is leaving the church on account of his opinions. His doubts would do him no good at Oxford. Mrs. Hale was silent for some time, quietly crying. At last she said, And the furniture! How in the world are we to manage the removal? I never removed in my life, and only a fortnight to think about it. Margaret was inexpressibly relieved to find that her mother's anxiety and distress was lowered to this point, so insignificant to herself, and on which she could do so much to help. She planned and promised, and led her mother on to arrange fully as much as could be fixed before they knew somewhat more definitely what Mr. Hale intended to do. Throughout the day Margaret never left her mother, bending her whole soul to sympathize in all the various turns her feelings took towards evening especially, as she became more and more anxious that her father should find a soothing welcome home awaiting him, after his return from his day of fatigue and distress. She dwelt upon what he must have borne in secret for so long. Her mother could only reply coldly that he ought to have told her, and that then, at any rate, he would have had an adviser to give him counsel. And Margaret turned, faint at heart, when she heard her father's step in the hall. She dared not go to meet him, and tell him what she had done all day, for fear of her mother's jealous annoyance. She heard him linger, as if awaiting her, or some sign of her, and she dared not stir. She saw by her mother's twitching lips, and changing color, that she too was aware that her husband had returned. Presently he opened the room door, and stood there uncertain whether to come in. His face was gray and pale. He had a timid, fearful look in his eyes, something almost pitiful to see in a man's face, but that look of despondent uncertainty, of mental and bodily languor, touched his wife's heart. She went to him and threw herself on his breast, crying out, "'Oh, Richard, Richard, you should have told me sooner!' And then, in tears, Margaret left her, as she rushed upstairs to throw herself on her bed and hide her face in the pillows, to stifle the hysteric sobs that would force their way at last, after the rigid self-control of the whole day. How long she lay thus she could not tell. She heard no noise, though the housemaid came in to arrange the room. The affrighted girl stole out again on tiptoe, 
and went and told Mrs. Dixon that Miss Hale was crying as if her heart would break. She was sure she would make herself deadly ill if she went on at that rate. In consequence of this, Margaret felt herself touched, and started up into a sitting posture. She saw the accustomed room, the figure of Dixon in shadow, as the latter stood holding the candle a little behind her, for fear of the effect on Miss Hale's startled eyes, swollen and blinded as they were. "'Oh, Dixon, I did not hear you come into the room,' said Margaret, resuming her trembling self-restraint. "'Is it very late?' she continued, lifting herself languidly off the bed, yet letting her feet touch the ground without fairly standing down, as she shaded her wet ruffled hair off her face, and tried to look as if nothing were the matter, as if she had only been asleep. "'I hardly can tell what time it is,' replied Dixon, in an aggrieved tone of voice. "'Since your mamma told me of this terrible news, when I dressed her for tea, I've lost all count of time. I'm sure I don't know what is to become of us all. When Charlotte told me just now you were sobbing, Miss Hale, I thought, no wonder, poor thing, and Master thinking of turning dissenter at his time of life, when, if it is not to be said he's done well in the church, he's not done badly after all.' I had a cousin, miss, who turned Methodist preacher after he was fifty years of age, and a tailor all his life. But then he had never been able to make a pair of trousers to fit, for as long as he had been in trade. So it was no wonder. But for Master, as I said to Mrs., what would poor St. John have said? He never liked your marrying Mr. Hale, but if he could have known it would have come to this, he would have sworn worse oaths than ever, if that was possible." Dixon had been so much accustomed to comment upon Mr. Hale's proceedings to her mistress, who listened to her, or not, as she was in the humour, that she never noticed Margaret's flashing eye and dilating nostril. To hear her father talked of in this way by a servant to her face. Dixon, she said, in the low tone she always used when much excited, which had a sound in it as of some distant turmoil or threatening storm breaking far away. Dixon! you forget to whom you are speaking. She stood upright and firm on her feet now, confronting the waiting-maid, and fixing her with her steady, discerning eye. I am Mr. Hale's daughter. Go. You have made a strange mistake, and one that I am sure your own good feeling will make you sorry for when you think about it. Dixon hung irresolutely about the room for a minute or two. Margaret repeated, you may leave me, Dixon. I wish you to go. Dixon did not know whether to resent these decided words, or to cry. Either course would have done with her mistress. But, as she said to herself, Miss Margaret has a touch of the old gentleman about her, as well as poor Master Frederick. I wonder where they get it from. And she, who would have resented such words from any one less haughty and determined in manner, was subdued enough to say, in a half-humble, half-injured tone. "'Mayn't I unfasten your gown, miss, and do your hair?' "'No, not to-night, thank you.' And Margaret gravely lighted her out of the room, and bolted the door. From henceforth Dixon obeyed and admired Margaret. She said it was because she was so like poor Master Frederick. But the truth was, that Dixon, as do many others, liked to feel herself ruled by a powerful and decided nature. Margaret needed all Dixon's help in action, and silence in words, for, for some time, the latter thought it her duty to show her sense of affront 
by saying as little as possible to her young lady so the energy came out in doing rather than in speaking a fortnight was a very short time to make arrangements for so serious a removal as dixon said any one but a gentleman indeed almost any other gentleman but catching a look at margaret's straight stern brow just here she coughed the remainder of the sentence away and meekly took the whorehound drop that margaret offered to her to stop the little tickle at my chest miss but almost any one but mr hale would have had practical knowledge enough to see that in so short a time it would be difficult to fix on any house in milton northern or indeed elsewhere to which they could remove the furniture that had of necessity to be taken out of helston vicarage mrs hale overpowered by all the troubles and necessities for immediate household decisions that seemed to come upon her at once became really ill and margaret almost felt it as a relief when her mother fairly took to her bed and let the management of affairs to her dixon true to her post of bodyguard, attended most faithfully to her mistress and only emerged from mrs hale's bedroom to shake her head and murmur to herself in a manner which margaret did not choose to hear for the one thing clear and straight before her was the necessity of leaving helstone mr hale's successor in the living was appointed and at any rate after her father's decision there must be no lingering now for his sake as well as from every other consideration for he came home every evening more and more depressed after the necessary leave-taking which he had resolved to have with every individual parishioner margaret inexperienced as she was in all the necessary matter-of-fact business to be got through did not know to whom to apply for advice the cook and charlotte worked away with willing arms and stout hearts at all the moving and packing and as far as that went margaret's admirable sense enabled her to see what was best and to direct how it should be done but where were they to go in a week they must be gone straight to milton or where so many arrangements depended on this decision that margaret resolved to ask her father one evening in spite of his evident fatigue and low spirits he answered my dear i really have too much to think about to settle this what does your mother say what does she wish poor maria he met with an echo even louder than his sigh dixon had just come into the room for another cup of tea for mrs hale and catching mr hale's last words and protected by his presence from margaret's upbraiding eyes made bold to say my poor mistress you don't think her worse to-day said mr hale turning hastily i'm sure i can't say sir it's not for me to judge the illness seems so much more on the mind than on the body mr hale looked infinitely distressed you had better take mamma her tea while it is hot dixon said margaret in a tone of quiet authority oh i beg your pardon miss my thoughts was otherwise occupied in thinking of my poor of mrs hale papa said margaret it is this suspense that is bad for both of you of course mamma must feel your change of opinions we can't help that she continued softly but now the course is clear at least to a certain point and i think papa that i can get mamma to help me in planning if you could tell me what to plan for she has never expressed any wish in any way and only thinks of what can't be helped are we to go straight to milton have you taken a house there no he replied i suppose we must go into lodgings and look about for a house 
and pack up the furniture so that it can be left at the railway station till we have met with one i suppose so do what you think is best only remember we shall have much less money to spend they had never had much superfluity as margaret knew she felt that it was a great weight suddenly thrown upon her shoulders four months ago all the decisions she needed to make were what dress she would wear for dinner and to help edith to draw out the lists of who should take down whom in the dinner parties at home nor was the household in which she lived one that called for much decision except in the one grand case of captain lennox's offer everything went on with the regularity of clockwork once a year there was a long discussion between her aunt and edith as to whether they should go to the isle of wight abroad or to scotland but at such times margaret herself was secure of drifting without any exertion of her own into the quiet harbour of home now since that day when mr lennox came and startled her into a decision every day brought some question momentous to her and to those whom she loved to be settled her father went up after tea to sit with his wife margaret remained alone in the drawing-room suddenly she took a candle and went into her father's study for a great atlas and lugging it back into the drawing-room she began to pore over the map of england she was ready to look up brightly when her father came downstairs i have hit upon such a beautiful plan look here in darkshire hardly the breadth of my finger from milton is heston which i have often heard of from people living in the north as such a pleasant little bathing-place now don't you think we could get mamma there with dixon while you and i go and look after houses and get one all ready for her in milton she would get a breath of sea air to set her up for the winter and be spared all the fatigue and dixon would enjoy taking care of her is dixon to go with us asked mr hale in a kind of helpless dismay oh yes said margaret dixon quite intends it and i don't know what mamma would do without her but we shall have to put up with a very different way of living i am afraid everything is so much dearer in a town i doubt if dixon can make herself comfortable to tell you the truth margaret i sometimes feel as if that woman gave herself airs to be sure she does papa replied margaret and if she has to put up with a different style of living we shall have to put up with her airs which will be worse but she really loves us all and would be miserable to leave us i am sure especially in this change so for mamma's sake and for the sake of her faithfulness i do think she must go very well my dear go on i am resigned how far is heston from milton the breath of one of your fingers does not give me a very clear idea of distance well then i suppose it is thirty miles that is not much not in distance but in never mind if you really think it will do your mother good let it be fixed so this was a great step now margaret could work and act and plan in good earnest and now mrs hale could rouse herself from her languor and forget her real suffering in thinking of the pleasure and delight of going to the seaside her only regret was that mr hale could not be with her all the fortnight she was to be there as he had been for a whole fortnight once when they were engaged and she was staying with sir john and lady beersford at torquay end of chapter five
Chapter Six of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Six. Farewell. Unwatched, the garden bough shall sway, the tender blossom flutter down. Unloved, that beech will gather brown, the maple burn itself away. Unloved, the sunflower shining fair, ray round with flames her disk of seed and many a rose carnation feed with summer spice the humming air till from the garden and the wild a fresh association blow and year by year the landscape grow familiar to the stranger's child as year by year the laborer tills his wonted glebe or lops the glades and year by year our memory fades from all the circle of the hills tennyson the last day came. The house was full of packing-cases, which were being carted off at the front door, to the nearest railway station. Even the pretty lawn at the side of the house was made unsightly and untidy by the straw that had been wafted upon it through the open door and windows. The rooms had a strange echoing sound in them, and the light came harshly and strongly in through the uncurtained windows, seeming already unfamiliar and strange. Mrs. Hale's dressing-room was left untouched to the last, and there she and Dixon were packing up clothes, and interrupting each other now and then to exclaim at, and turn over with fond regard, some forgotten treasure, in the shape of some relic of the children while they were yet little. They did not make much progress with their work. Downstairs, Margaret stood calm and collected, ready to counsel or advise the men who had been called in to help the cook and Charlotte these two last crying between the wiles wondered how the young lady could keep up so this last day and settled it between them that she was not likely to care much for helstone having been so long in london there she stood very pale and quiet with her large grave eyes observing everything up to every present circumstance however small they could not understand how her heart was aching all the time with a heavy pressure that no size could lift off or relieve, and how constant exertion from her perceptive faculties was the only way to keep herself from crying out with pain. Moreover, if she gave way, who was to act? Her father was examining papers, books, registries, what not, in the vestry with the clerk, and when he came in there were his own books to pack up, which no one but himself could do to his satisfaction. Besides, was Margaret one to give way before strange men, or even household friends like the cook and Charlotte? Not she. But at last the four packers went into the kitchen to their tea, and Margaret moved stiffly and slowly away from the place in the hall where she had been standing so long, out through the bare echoing drawing-room, into the twilight of an early November evening. There was a filmy veil of soft dull mist obscuring, but not hiding, all objects, giving them a lilac hue, for the sun had not yet fully set. A robin was singing. Perhaps, Margaret thought, the very robin that her father had so often talked of as his winter pet, and for which he had made, with his own hands, a kind of robin-house by his study window. The leaves were more gorgeous than ever. The first touch of frost would lay them all low on the ground. Already one or two kept constantly floating down, amber and golden in the low slanting sun-rays margaret went along the walk under the pear-tree wall 
she had never been along it since she paced it at henry lennox's side here at this bed of time he began to speak of what she must not think of now her eyes were on that late-blowing rose as she was trying to answer and she had caught the idea of the vivid beauty of the feathery leaves of the carrot in the middle of his last sentence only a fortnight ago and all so changed where was he now in london going through the old round dining with the old harley street set or with gayer young friends of his own even now while she walked sadly through that damp and drear garden in the dusk with everything falling and fading and turning to decay around her he might be gladly putting away his law-books after a day of satisfactory toil and freshening himself up as he had told her he often did by a run in the temple gardens taking in the while the grand inarticulate mighty roar of tens of thousands of busy men nigh at hand but not seen and catching ever at his quick turns glimpses of the lights of the cities coming up out of the depths of the river he had often spoken to margaret of these hasty walks snatched in the intervals between study and dinner at his best times and in his best moods he had spoken of them and the thought of them had struck upon her fancy here there was no sound the robin had gone away into the vast stillness of night now and then a cottage door in the distance was opened and shut as if to admit the tired laborer to his home but that sounded very far away a stealthy creeping cranching sound among the crisp fallen leaves of the forest beyond the garden seemed almost close at hand margaret knew it was some poacher sitting up in her bedroom this past autumn with the light of her candle extinguished and purely reveling in the solemn beauty of the heavens and the earth she had many a time seen the light noiseless leap of the poachers over the garden fence their quick tramp across the dewy moonlit lawn their disappearance in the black still shadow beyond the wild adventurous freedom of their life had taken her fancy she felt inclined to wish them success she had no fear of them but to-night she was afraid she knew not why she heard charlotte shutting the windows and fastening up for the night unconscious that any one had gone out into the garden a small branch it might be of rotten wood or it might be broken by force came heavily down in the nearest part of the forest margaret ran swift as camilla down to the window and rapped at it with a hurried tremulousness which startled charlotte within let me in let me in it's only me charlotte her heart did not still its flutter till she was safe in the drawing-room with the windows fastened and bolted and the familiar walls hemming her round and shutting her in she had sat down upon a packing-case cheerless chill was the dreary and dismantled room no fire nor other light but charlotte's long unsnuffed candle charlotte looked at margaret with surprise and margaret feeling it rather than seeing it rose up i was afraid you were shutting me out altogether charlotte said she half smiling and then you would never have heard me in the kitchen and the doors into the lane in the churchyard are locked long ago oh miss i should have been sure to have missed you soon the men would have wanted you to tell them how to go on and i have put tea in master's study as being the most comfortable room so to speak thank you charlotte you are a kind girl i shall be sorry to leave you you must try and write to me if i can ever give you any little help or good advice i shall always be glad to get a letter from helstone you know 
I shall be sure to send you my address when I know it. The study was all ready for tea. There was a good blazing fire, and unlighted candles on the table. Margaret sat down on the rug, partly to warm herself, for the dampness of the evening hung about her dress, and over-fatigue had made her chilly. She kept herself balanced by clasping her hands together round her knees. Her head dropped a little towards her chest. The attitude was one of despondency, whatever her frame of mind might be. But when she heard her father's step on the gravel outside, she started up, and hastily shaking her heavy black hair back, and wiping a few tears away that came on her cheeks she knew not how, she went out to open the door for him. He showed far more depression than she did. She could hardly get him to talk, although she tried to speak on subjects that would interest him, at the cost of an effort every time which she thought would be her last. "'Have you been on a very long walk to-day?' she asked, on seeing his refusal to touch food of any kind. "'As far as Fordham Beaches. I went to see Willow Maltby. She is sadly grieved at not having wished you good-bye. She says little Susan has kept watch down the lane for days past.' "'Nay, Margaret, what is the matter, dear?' the thought of the little child watching for her, and continually disappointed, from no forgetfulness on her part, but from sheer inability to leave home, was the last drop in poor Margaret's cup, and she was sobbing away as if her heart would break. Mr. Hale was distressingly perplexed. He rose, and walked nervously up and down the room. Margaret tried to check herself, but would not speak until she could do so with firmness. She heard him talking, as if to himself. I cannot bear it. I cannot bear to see the sufferings of others. I think I could go through with my own patience. Oh, is there no going back? No, father, said Margaret, looking straight at him, and speaking low and steadily. It is bad to believe you in error. It would be infinitely worse to have known you a hypocrite. She dropped her voice at the last few words as if entertaining the idea of hypocrisy for a moment in connection with her father savoured of irreverence. Besides, she went on, it is only that I am tired to-night. Don't think that I am suffering from what you have done, dear papa. We can't either of us talk about it to-night, I believe, said she, finding that tears and sobs would come in spite of herself. I had better go and take mamma up this cup of tea, she had hers very early, when I was too busy to go to her, and I'm sure she will be glad of another now. Railroad time inexorably wrenched them from lovely, beloved Hellstone the next morning. They were gone. They had seen the last of the long, low parsonage home, half covered with china roses and pyracanthus, more homelike than ever in the morning sun that glittered on its windows, each belonging to some well-loved room. Almost before they had settled themselves into the car, sent from Southampton to fetch them to the station, they were gone away to return no more. A sting at Margaret's heart made her strive to look out, to catch the last glimpse of the old church-tower, at the turn where she knew it might be seen above a wave of the forest trees. But her father remembered this too, and she silently acknowledged his greater right to the one window from which it could be seen. She leant back and shut her eyes and the tears welled forth, and hung glittering for an instant on the shadowing eyelashes, before rolling slowly down her cheeks, and dropping, unheeded, on her dress. They were to stop in London all night at some quiet hotel. 
poor mrs hale had cried in her way nearly all day long and dixon showed her sorrow by extreme crossness and a continual irritable attempt to keep her petticoats from even touching the unconscious mr hale whom she regarded as the origin of all this suffering they went through the well-known streets past houses which they had often visited past shops in which she had lounged impatiently by her aunt's side while that lady was making some important and interminable decision nay absolutely past acquaintances in the streets for though the morning had been of an incalculable length to them and they felt as if it ought long ago to have closed in for the repose of the darkness it was the very busiest time of a london afternoon in november when they arrived there it was long since mrs hale had been in london and she roused up almost like a child to look about her at the different streets and to gaze after and exclaim at the shops and carriages oh there's harrison's where i bought so many of my wedding things dear how altered they've got immense plate-glass windows larger than crawford's in southampton oh and there i declare no it is not yes it is margaret we have just passed mr henry lennox where can he be going among all these shops margaret started forwards and as quickly fell back half smiling at herself for the sudden motion they were a hundred yards away by this time but he seemed like a relic of helstone he was associated with a bright morning an eventful day and she should have liked to have seen him without his seeing her without the chance of their speaking the evening without employment passed in a room high up in a hotel was long and heavy mr hale went out to his booksellers and to call on a friend or two every one they saw either in the house or out in the streets appeared hurrying to some appointment expected by or expecting somebody they alone seemed strange and friendless and desolate yet within a mile margaret knew of house after house where she for her own sake and her mother for her aunt shaw's would be welcome if they came in gladness or even in peace of mind if they came sorrowing and wanting sympathy in a complicated trouble like the present then they would be felt as a shadow in all these houses of intimate acquaintances not friends london life is too whirling and full to admit of even an hour of that deep silence of feeling which the friends of job showed when they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and none spake a word unto him for they saw that his grief was very great End of chapter 6